we did the unimaginable because somebody saw in me the potential to solve problems or do something that I didn't even know was possible. And so now as a leader, I have the privilege, and I think a lot of folks who are in leadership positions have this privilege, to bet on people and to invest in them and push them in ways that maybe get them uncomfortable, give them responsibilities, perhaps try something that's never been tried before, and see them thrive and grow. And so for me today, a big part of where I get my energy and passion and my why is not just building great businesses, but creating other leaders who can then go on to thrive and with coaching and guidance and trial and error, do things that maybe they didn't think were possible. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. When I'm in the car these days, it's typically with the kids. Yeah. So I feel like my kids have gotten to know you <laughs> and your guests, by the way. They're 13, 14, and 18. So I'm not sure, you know. They're I'll, like, oh my God, Juven again? I think the litmus test is, would they listen without me? <laughs> I'm not sure I've quite gotten them there, but uh, no, it's been fun. I, Yesterday, someone on my team was flying from New York to the Bay Area, and he's like, dude, you're not going to believe this. The guy to my left, I just looked at his phone, and he's listening to Grit. And oh. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, legit. Yeah. Well, I would have interrupted and that's, be like, you know, that's weird. I know that that's guy. Weird. That's weird. <laughs> I told the team, I'm like, hey, you know, just given the way that your hair looks versus my hair, should we do <laughs> should we do no camera for this one? Should we turn the, should we turn the Oh, trust me. There's, a, there's the, a lot of product in that the, hair. The, yeah. juxta, the juxtaposition between you and I feels really stark sitting across the uh, table from you. And I knew it. Not I at knew all. it. And not I was like, all. oh, man. Well, dude, I appreciate it. Have you been here before? If I have, it was probably two decades ago, and it didn't look like this. This is a beautiful office. Yeah, it's nice, right? When you were doing your search for the next jobs, did you ever go through the venture thing? Like, did you ever approach a investor or a GP and be like, hey, anything in your portfolio that's interesting or exciting? Or did you go mostly through the network of folks that you've already worked with in your operating past? Yeah, I've been here for in, in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, for over two decades yeah. now. And through that, you naturally build a lot of great yeah. relationships. And so typically, when I've found my way to Sand Hill Road, it is because I want to really tap somebody for some advice. And oftentimes, it's, hey, you know a few things about this company. You've invested in them or you know the space. And so that's often what finds my, you know, me coming to Sand Hill Road. And absolutely, I mean, there's a lot of really incredible technology investors here, but I find that the investor has a very unique perspective on a company. Yeah. Now, what's fascinating is typically if they're trying to recruit me or yeah. anyone, uh, it's a slightly biased perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I really value kind of the view from an How do you synthesize through that bias? Because it's true. It's always, I mean, of course, it's like talking about your kid in some respect, like you're going to say nice things about them. Yeah. yeah. You're going to kind of have the veneer on. Introspection for me works really well, yeah. which is, look, I want to be told the best possible version of a company's narrative. Mm -hmm. But I find that oftentimes when you're listening to yourself and your own intuition about the people, the strategy, a company's product, Mm. most importantly for me, the purpose and mission, and does that align with what I believe? That's where my truth tends to come. And so 
sell me. I want to talk to employees. I want to talk to alumni. I want to talk to folks who've invested in the company. I would love to talk to the founders when exploring opportunities or thinking to even partner with the company. Mm. But at the end of the day, that core essence of what does a company stand for and does it align with what I believe, whether mm. I'm going to work for them, whether I'm going to work with them, it doesn't really matter. But I, I find that quiet time to myself to reflect on the purpose of an organization and if that's something that I'm passionate about, my answers typically come from there. Yeah. One of the things that has really surprised me when I was going through your background was you would go do a startup, then you'd go to a sexy logo like an eBay. Uh-huh. Then you'd go to another company that I'd never heard of. Right. You know, then you'd go to Atlassian. Yeah. Right. You become the CMO of Atlassian. Then you become the president of DocuSign. The thing that I kept asking myself was when you make the jump from, let's say, eBay to Spring mm-hmm. or McKinsey to starting Monkey Bin. Right. Right. Is any of your identity or ego attached to the job that you're leaving? Meaning, why I don't see these type of jumps very often is mm-hmm. because it's often really hard mm-hmm. once you have the kind of gold-plated logo on mm. your resume, mm-hmm. once you have the stamp that you've done it somewhere that's credentialed mm-hmm. socially in the valley, mm-hmm. it's difficult to then kind of give all of that up, all of that kind of goodwill that you've been building towards, and it's cushy job, yeah. to then go, maybe it seems to me like that hasn't you're relatively unaffected by that. Well, you're touching on something very personal. Uh, the truth is I'm very, there has rarely been, probably never, a company or a team that I wanted to leave. This is something that is defining of my journey. You know, look, go back to McKinsey. I was there for three years. There was a great opportunity for the consulting firm to pay for business school. I come from a very traditional South Asian Indian family where success is defined in very specific ways. <laughs> And imagine my parents' reaction. You know, there were immigrants in the 70s who came to the U.S. And it's a story many others will see themselves in, which is very limited resources, had to work really hard. You talk about grit. Yeah. You know, uh, immigrant parents are typically the definition of true grit. And I said, hey, listen, mom and dad, you know, I was maybe 21, 22 years old. This whole consulting thing in McKinsey and business school, and it's all great. I, I realize that but I want to start a company and I don't have any funding. I don't know anybody in San Francisco, but I have a great co-founder and I have an aspiration and I'm going to call it monkey bin, <laughs> right? You can just imagine the reaction. And the truth is I, I didn't want to leave McKinsey because I love the company. I love the learning. I built my startup. We ended up selling the assets. I didn't want to leave that. I went to eBay. I was there for 12 years. I didn't want to leave that. And I believe that the things you do in life and the teams that you work with, if it's easy to leave, then something was wrong. But what pulls me through is a desire to build. And oftentimes when I feel like my time is done building and the organization or the team is better served by somebody else who can come and take it to the next phase, I try to do a lot to create that next opportunity. And this isn't just with between companies, but even within organizations, finding ways to have, I call it my side hustle, Mm. which is what can I work on that goes beyond just the scope of my day job? And it might turn into something and it might not, but it's this entrepreneurial energy, whether it's in an early stage company or in an established company, to constantly be thinking about what's next and how can I create value there? And oftentimes that means letting things go that you don't want to let go of, but it's a way to reinvent yourself. Yeah. And so 
how do you know when you're at McKinsey that time's up? How do you know when you're at whatever job that your learning has started to asymptote? Yeah, that's a hard thing. And it takes a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection. I believe one sign for me and everyone's journey is different is when you start solving the same problems over and over, right? Or a different version of the same Mm. problem. And so, you know, a lot of learning comes from getting uncomfortable. And for me, uh, there's a certain, I wouldn't call it an anxiety, but a discomfort that comes from getting too comfortable. Almost like an itchiness. Yeah, an itchiness because I know that there is, not that there isn't more to do, but comfy feels good. But oftentimes when you're on that plateau, you're not growing. And I really believe that, you know, I call it the zone of healthy anxiety. When you jump into something and you feel like you're just in a little bit over your head Mm. and you don't know exactly how to solve the problem or exactly what you're going to do, that's a good place to be because that's where the best learning comes from. And so for me, when I have that intrinsic feeling for months or sometimes even longer that maybe I've seen this problem before and it's getting a little bit too straightforward and clear as to how to solve it, it's time to get uncomfortable. Yeah. But you also seemingly are able to separate the what the job is and the role from the company, if that makes sense. Meaning, yeah, it seems like you're so focused on the learning and really... I don't know. It doesn't seem like you care much about going to a company and starting a company called Monkey Bin and then going to eBay where you're the CMO of North America at eBay. Life's good. You're probably traveling <laughs> nice. You're staying at the nice hotels. Everyone panders to you. And at that point, eBay was a great company. Yeah. To then go be the CRO and CMO of a Spring. Mm-hmm. I, I just, do you not think about what most people would think about in these decisions? Does that make sense? I absolutely do think about those things. And it matters. And oftentimes this is that time to really look deep within. Look, I, I'm fortunate. Which could include like a big comfortable salary as yeah. an example, right? Yeah. 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 Now look, we're in Silicon Valley. This is the home of where creative destruction and reinventing yourself is really, at least in the realm of technology, it's really the temple for how to think about learning and reinvention. And Frankly, I draw on that energy and I I ask, you know, I I call it my personal board of advisors. Many of us have this, which is the three to five people you look to and turn to to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm feeling. I would love to get your perspective. And you get a lot of different opinions. And in fact, for me, having a a good personal board of advisors means um, spectrum of opinions and knowing that I'm going to hear different points of view from different individuals. But then at the end of the day, it has to come down to a decision that you make, right? One that's very personal. So just to give you an example, I was at eBay for 12 years. I love that company. Never before had I really gotten so deeply connected to a business where you have this intersection of technology, a marketplace, and a community. And, you know, I did, I had seven different roles, seven or eight different roles over 12 years within eBay. And almost every single one of those positions I created, meaning it didn't exist. It was a side hustle and then it became my next thing. And through that journey, you really fall in love with the company's purpose and mission. And so what was that at eBay? It was this belief that it doesn't matter what language you speak, what country you're from, or what your economic status is. Everyone around the world is exactly the same in one regard, which is 
we want to create a better life for ourselves and for our families, right? This idea of getting access to opportunity. And so if somebody at eBay said, hey, I know you're running marketing, but we'd love for you to go run customer support, or we'd love for you to go figure out problem X, Y, or Z, wouldn't matter what that was. I was so in love with the company's purpose and mission that I would have done it. And so for me, the why I do things is so important because it unleashes a lot of energy within me. And so when I was thinking about, well, why would I transition? Why would I leave a company that I love so much? And what I saw at eBay, this is in 2015 or so, is for the first time in the company's history, a pretty big departure between the strategy of the company and its purpose and mission. It started to really divide. And that's a very difficult place, I think, for a lot of people What's to operate. What's an example? Well, Look, eBay was founded on this principle of community and empowering individuals to gain access to a global marketplace. Really invented a lot of the things that other business models have thrived on. The idea of community, global trade, payments, feedback, and trust and safety. 25 years ago, you couldn't imagine sending money to a stranger and getting something in return. Like We take a little bit of that for granted, Mm. but that concept Mm -hmm. just didn't exist. And what eBay was moving towards is chasing growth through fixed price, new in season retail products, and really moving away from this idea of people-powered commerce. And for me, I really believed in that model. There was a the big original push, model. The original model. Yeah. There was a big push at eBay to bring Macy's and Target and Best Buy and ASOS and these global retailers onto the platform. And look, there's a place for that. But I didn't think at my core that that was going to help the company succeed. In fact, what I felt was needed was the company needed to get back to its origins of really supporting sellers and creating access to demand that eBay could uniquely bring. And you see business models like Shopify and Etsy and others Mm. who've really built incredible businesses off of that. And I tried to change that. I worked really, really hard to influence some of the decisions that were being made. But I realized that it was probably going to be really challenging. Mm. And instead of building, I was sort of optimizing at the edges. You know, look, I was the CMO of the North America business, talking about $35, $40 billion in transaction volume, $500, $600 million in marketing spend. I mean, it is a machine, Mm. right? So even bigger than that today. And that's a hard thing to let go of, to go to a untested early stage venture-backed company. But what I saw at Spring was a business model where Really, it reminded me of the early days of eBay, which is empowering creators and entrepreneurs to build their businesses. And, you know, I said earlier, I really love this intersection of people, community, technology, and sort of technology in service of humanity, where a platform can be built to empower people to do great things. That's my thing. I would really get excited about that. And so letting go of eBay was difficult because I didn't want to leave. Right. But I knew that the business was going in a direction that deviated from who I was and what I loved. Yeah, that makes sense. How long from the first seed of doubt, how long did you live in the gray area in your head? How long were you conflicted for from that first seed? Yeah, uh, I would say about four to six months. And Jubin, I'll, I'll tell you, there was a moment, and I'll never forget this, which was January 2015. And like many companies that are going through transformation, eBay had to make some tough calls on letting people go. And I was running the marketing organization at the time. And in January 2015, eBay was going through a number of leadership changes. They had just announced the separation of PayPal and Mm. eBay. Fantastic leadership team, 
led by John Donahoe and others who were driving that change. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I was deciding whether I'm in for the next chapter or not. And in January 2015, there was about a 5 to 7% staff reduction that had to happen at eBay. And of course, that affected hundreds of people in my organization. And as any leader should do, it's important to lead with empathy through those times. And I was in a room in San Jose on the second floor of one of the buildings at e- on the eBay campus. And we had just announced and gone through those changes. And I had to bring the rest of the team together in a room and tell them why I was so passionate and committed about the future of this company. I owed it to them to let them know why we were not only going to survive, but why this company was going to thrive. Mm-hmm. And I stood in front of this room, you know, there's hundreds of people in this room, and I had to communicate to them why I believe so deeply in this company. And it was one of the first times in my life that I felt inauthentic and dishonest. Because on one hand, I love this business so much, mm. and I had to rally those who were left, you know, who were feeling really guilty about the changes that were just made to commit to the next chapter of this company. And it's a really difficult place, I think, for any leader to say one thing and feel something different. Mm. And that was the moment where I realized that I couldn't do this anymore yeah. uh, because I fundamentally didn't believe in the direction the company was going. And that's really hard when you love a place yeah. a lot. And you know, I couldn't even finish that session. And there was uh, Griff, who was the head of our community at the time, kind of the founder of the eBay community, and he was in the front row. And I said, Griff, if you could tell the room why you believe in this company so much and what we stand for and why you believe we are so positioned to fulfill our purpose. I couldn't finish. I had to have him get up and tell wow. his story wow. because I just felt that disconnect. And yeah. that's when I knew it was my time. Can you find purpose in company building beyond the mission of an individual company? Meaning, one of the things that I think a lot about in my role at Kleiner Perkins is we are investing in what aspires to be very high growth companies. Mm -hmm. And in high growth companies, this beautiful thing happens where if you're growing fast enough, there is more jobs that need to be done than people to do the jobs. Right. And so if you take that as true, then you need to put people into responsibilities that they're otherwise not really fit for in a larger company. Sure. Let's just say. Sure. Okay. And so now you're giving people incredible amounts of responsibility. You're creating net new additive jobs at a compounding rate. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that level of upward mobility through your career is the number one way to change your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I think I learned that from my parents who immigrated here and used that as their lever or mechanism to change their life. Yeah. Can you find meaning as a leader of people in creating those types of opportunities, not dissimilar from the opportunities that you had at eBay having six or seven jobs, rather than focusing more myopically, I guess, on the task at hand for that specific company. Does the distinction make sense? It does. Look, I think as leaders and as individuals, we all trade our time in exchange for something, right? Whether it's money, whether it's notoriety or visibility, oftentimes it is the opportunity to shape something and create something that didn't exist. And I have been the beneficiary of people who have bet on me and saw potential in me for things that I didn't even know I was capable of doing, Mm. right? I'll use another eBay example. 
a guy named a leader named Henry Vogel who said, "Hey, this is going to be your new role at eBay. You're going to help lead the search engine optimization team." Now, this is back in 2004, 2005, where that was a very new concept. And mm. I said, "Hey, that's great, Henry, but I think you have the wrong guy. You know, I'm not a marketer." And then you know you have that moment where you realize you're not really being asked. <laughs> you're being told. It mm. sounds like you're being asked. <laughs> and I went on to do something and create something with the team where we created a couple hundred million dollars in value within 24 months. And we did the unimaginable because mm. somebody saw in me the potential to solve problems or do something that I didn't even know was possible. Mm. And so now as a leader, I have the privilege, and I think a lot of folks who are in leadership positions have this privilege, to bet on people and to invest in them and push them in ways that maybe get them uncomfortable, give them responsibilities, perhaps try something that's never been tried before, and see them thrive and grow. And so for me today, a big part of where I get my energy and passion and my why is not just building great businesses, but creating other leaders who can then go on to thrive and with coaching and guidance and mm. trial and error, do things that maybe they didn't think were possible. I wrote a purpose statement. I even carried it around with me and now it's in my phone and my notes app. I wrote this with the help of a coach 15 years ago, maybe longer. And it hasn't changed. And it has, it has a couple parts, but my purpose is to build meaningful businesses that create hope and opportunity in the world and to do so with high-performing teams. And the second part of that around high-performing teams is a chance to build not just great individuals and leaders who can do things that maybe they didn't think was possible, but to create an organization or a team for sustainable success and see that thrive. And the great thing is about no two teams are alike. And so there's something really rewarding beyond just what a company sells and what a company creates and what a company does. There's something really rewarding about building a powerful, enduring culture mm. comprised of individuals that reflect an organization's values. And uh, that's what I'm doing at DocuSign. That's what I did at Atlassian. That's what I did at eBay. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I think if you speak to most leaders, I think they'll tell you they find that really rewarding. Yeah, I think well said. Your personal mission statement, how old were you when you... Uh, I was in my probably late 20s where that, you know, I, I kind of batted, I put it, I put it away for a while and I brought it back out. Was there a catalyst? Yeah, there was. While I was at, at eBay, I, I had the privilege of meeting a fantastic coach through uh, some of my mentors, a guy named Vance Caesar. He's down in Southern California. Vance was maybe in his late 50s or 60s. But when you're in your mid-20s and you meet somebody you know, who's 40 years your senior, you're like, wow, this is a wise sage. You know, I better listen to what mm -hmm. everything he says. And you know, he would just ask me these really profound questions, which is, why do you do what you do? Or what creates energy for you? And all of that ultimately led to this moment where I decided it was hard for me to figure out exactly what I wanted to do next because I had in my mind a very clear sense of linear progression. And I think a lot of folks in their 20s, this is normal, which is you have a blueprint in mind for what a career trajectory looks like. Or oftentimes we look to our left and to our right for our, you know, to our friends or people we graduated with and we sort of calibrate how are we doing relative to these folks? And am I working on the right things? And uh, at McKinsey, we used to call this um, highly anxious overachievers, right? Or you're doing really, really well and you're thriving, yet you're still questioning yourself. Mm. And for me, I was in one of those moments where I was like, well, what's the right next move to make? What should I do next? And Vance sort of slowed all that down for me and said, well, think about the why. And for me, that was a really difficult exercise. But once I was able to codify and clarify my why, which is this idea of building meaningful businesses, creating 
and then hope and opportunity. And I realized, well, that's what eBay is ultimately about. Mm. And I'm in an environment where I get a chance to do things I love with the companies whose purpose and mission I believe in. But the piece around doing this by building high-performing teams is where I realize I get to go create not just a good business, but a culture and an organization that can help navigate that company. Now, once I had kids, I sort of evolved that purpose statement. The second half of that is to serve as a role model for my family by being a great husband, father, and son. Mm. And so now what I have is this effectively North Star for me that has two parts, one around my professional life, one around my personal life. And then the more I can do to disintegrate those boundaries between the two, that's Mm. where I feel like I I really can be who I am and my authentic self. Growing up when you were a son, where, where were you raised? I was raised in Chicago. So my parents came, uh, my father first came to San Francisco from India, Mm. quickly moved to Chicago because he was told that's where you could find a job. And, uh, you know, he he pursued wanting to save money uh, so that he could save up for graduate school. Mm. And he was married at the time. And my mother was still in India. And then within a couple of years, she followed him to Chicago. Uh, And I think she arrived in winter, right in the middle of winter from India uh, for the first time traveling internationally. Yeah. There's these great photos of my parents in the early 70s with uh, these great broad collared shirts and bell bottoms standing in the snow, you know, in the middle of a cold Chicago winter. Those were some hard times, but they stayed there. And I was born and raised in the Chicago area. When you were growing up, what was the conversation like for you? Was it spiritual in nature? Because it strikes me that you almost carry this spiritual aura about company building. I cannot explain (laughs) it. I cannot explain it. But there's something almost religious about the way that you talk about leadership in companies and all the work that I've been doing. Oh, that's so fascinating. I would say my mom has always been a very spiritual person. Uh, She has incredible, like many moms, this emotional intelligence and energy. And my dad had a lot of hustle, grit, an entrepreneurial edge, always sort of creating and thinking about what's next. And I think I'm a pretty good blend of both what of they them. Talk about at, what they talk about? Did they talk to you? Did they talk to each other? Did you they know, talk about work? We came from very modest means, and I grew up in a very simple suburban lifestyle where my parents always made sure that my brother and I were provided for, but they worked all the time. And my dad was in finance. He ultimately became an entrepreneur and opened retail businesses. My mom worked in a printing factory for decades. And what I saw and observed, I think, was that there's really no substitute for hard work. That's one of the lessons I took away from them. So they would talk a lot about schedules and making sure that between my brother and I, you know, we were getting picked up and dropped off from schools. I was raised a lot in the early years by my neighbors. Uh, We lived in a really small community in a suburb of Chicago. Everyone sort of pitched in because if they'd be working late, my mom worked night shifts a lot. My dad did as well. And so I really felt safe, protected, part of a community. And a lot of my lessons and learning came on the weekends when I would go to work with my dad or just from watching how they built their life in the U.S. and understanding and observing how they did that. And, you know, indirectly, I think you, you pick up a lot of lessons. Yeah. And you were close to your dad, really close. I was. Yeah. yeah. When did he pass? Do you mind me asking? Yeah. Um, he passed in, uh, I think it was 2010. So, And I'm curious, bringing it back to, that was like mid eBay for you. During that time, when you think about your personal mission statement, it, yeah. hearing you talk about how it shifted when you had kids, did it shift at that point with your dad as well? Meaning, did you have a newfound perspective on the things that were important, similar to what happened when you had kids? 
I think the powerful thing about losing a parent or even seeing parents go through struggles, you know, at a certain point in life, whether it's financial struggles or health struggles, is we all try to figure out how to do it all. I think in Silicon Valley, this is one of these challenges that we have is like, how do I build a great company or how do I build a great career? Um, how do I take care of my family and how do I do both of these things? And it was probably when my, you know, my dad had a stroke and later was diagnosed with leukemia. And as I was helping the family navigate that, you know, I, first of all, I moved them from Chicago to the Bay Area. Mm. And that was a really smart decision in retrospect, not knowing that he would fall ill. Mm. But uh, he passed away within a year of that wow. move. And that was a really important time. So making those bold decisions to get the family in one place, but balancing that with work, I think I benefited a lot from mentors and leaders at eBay who said, listen, you do what you need to do, right? Like, if you need to take time for your family, then do it. Because guess what? Somebody on your team is going to need your help at some point, and you'll be able to pay that favor forward. And so that moment with my father when he fell ill and wasn't doing well, and I had to spend more time with the family, I was fortunate to have a really fantastic team who would lean in and step up. And I didn't have to worry about that. And so that really, I think, reinforced this power of doing as much as you can to integrate your life and being the same person in every dimension of your life. My dad was always really good about that. Like who he showed up as the person at work versus with the family and with the kids versus with his friends. He was exactly the same person all throughout. I learned the importance of that at eBay when I had to take time away for the family, whether it was for the kids or for my dad's health. And that's always stayed with me. Yeah. Do you feel like maybe before that you weren't totally the same? Meaning you are at Monkey Band, you're the co-founder of Monkey Band, and you're trying to play the part of co-founder? Yeah. You're you're, you're trying to be an entrepreneur. We're raising money. In fact, I was up and down Sandhill Road back (laughs) in the day. You're too young to remember this, but we would have paper printouts of our business plans and we would number them right? Thinking like, hey, if we number them, they're going to be secure and we'll be able to track back if one leaks. So we raised a lot of our money here right on Sandhill Road. And you know, you're the persona of an entrepreneur who has a hustle and grit and didn't talk about our personal lives, right? And back at the early days of eBay, I was about being the best marketer or product person or whatever role I was doing. You know, I built a few businesses inside of eBay it takes a lot of energy to kind of keep those walls up. And we had a couple of just truly remarkable CEOs at eBay who I was able to learn and observe. Mm. Uh, Meg, Meg Whitman was mm. one of them, later John Donahoe. And in fact, John John wrote about this. Now CEO of Nike, John. John is at the yeah. CEO of Nike, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, eBay service now, the mm-hmm. Nike. Truly a servant leader. And I remember he gave me a copy of a book. And he said, Robert, I think, I think you need to read this. You'll, you'll enjoy it. And... It was a book called True North by Bill George, who's now, I believe, still a professor at Harvard Business School. And I opened the book and it was like John's personal copy. It had a signature, an autograph from Bill. And I was like, whoa, John, like, I'm going to, I promise I will read this and give it right back to you. And he's like, oh, no, 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 you know, just take, keep it as long as you need to. And it's a fantastic book. In fact, I want to go back and reread it, but there's a chapter in there about John and his leadership style. And he starts with a story. And as soon as I read this, it, it resonated with me, which is he uses a metaphor of a house. And imagine that every dimension of your life is a different room of this house. So your family life is your family room. Your friends are in the living room or in, you know, in the garage. You, you, you get it, right? Yeah, work the is office, in the kitchen, whatever. Yeah, in the office, in the kitchen, anywhere. Yeah. If you could tear the walls down across 
this entire house and bring every wall down, can you be the same person in every room? Right? Can you show up exactly the same in every dimension of your life? And he talks about how this is something that he worked on because it allows him to be a very authentic, real leader. And that's what I've learned, which is like, just be the same person in every dimension of your life, whether people like it or not. You are who you are. And that for me, Unleash is a tremendous amount of energy. And, and I'll be honest, I often find myself coming into DocuSign was, wait a second, like, does my team really know me? I need to slow down to go faster and spend time building trust and getting to know each other. Because guess what? There will be plenty of problems to solve. But that foundation of getting to know each other at a very personal, very human level, I think unleashes a huge amount of potential in teams. Meaning, can you walk, using that home metaphor, can you walk around the different rooms of the house without context switching, without changing some version of what you are into all those different rooms? Exactly. I'm curious, when you thought about that metaphor at that time in your life, was there a shining part of the house that obviously stood out for you relative to the others, whether that was son, boss, employee, parent, you know, was there some part of that room that was, you know, friend yeah. that was very clearly different from the others? Was it work? Uh, yeah, I think so. yeah, for for sure, for work. Yeah. Look, you know, I <laughs> I have a I have a pretty rowdy and fun group of friends in my personal life. Uh, we celebrate birthdays, bachelor parties, not too many bachelor parties these days. Yeah, and we let loose a lot. And I was like, you know, at work, I, I take work very seriously, and I, I show up as probably somebody who prides myself in having the answer or having an approach to solving problems. And I try to chip away at as much of that as possible. And I think what one happens is it requires some vulnerability, which is, yeah, you know what? I did just come back from Vegas and I'm going to share these photos and uh, my stories with people at work because I'm a little sleep deprived this Monday and uh, I want them to know why. And it's going to be a way for me to share my story and for them to share their stories. And I try to do that as much as possible. One, because we spend a lot of time at work, right? And finding ways to build bonds and be vulnerable and just be human, I think is really important. And for me, it's unlocked a lot of great conversations and great relationships. And one of the things I get so excited about is when those relationships transcend any workplace and the relationships that last and stay with you. And so I would say, you know, in my 30s, that's probably something I spent a lot of time focused on is like, hey, just tear, tear those walls down and just be the same person in every aspect of your life. And you'll attract individuals who appreciate and enjoy that. And uh, in some cases, that's not always the outcome and that's okay. Yeah. Is there something that you've done independent of kids? Because that's the obvious answer that you're the most proud of. Wow, that's that's a great question. I think what I'm most proud of is my ability to reinvent myself in service of others. And so what I mean by that is... You know, we talked earlier about this idea of writing the future that has not been defined yet or Mm. creating and doing what's next, trying Mm. things that you haven't done. And I believe that creates a lot of, for me, a lot of personal energy and a lot of pride and excitement. And then that also affects the folks around you. And so I think for me, having my kids watch me let go of things and start something new because I believe in an idea coming into an organization and building or rebuilding or reshaping teams so individuals can do their best work and unlock the potential. That's often a result of just questionable leadership or poor ways of working. I love going into environments and just tapping into what's possible. Mm. 
And I'm proud of my ability to do that. So rather than kind of look back and all those key moments when that's happened, I get excited about, well, what don't I know about the future? Like, where will I be in five years? You know, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I know that it'll be around creating something that didn't exist or trying something that hasn't been tried before. And there'll be a lot of value that gets unlocked. And I think a lot of fun along the way. What ended up happening in Monkey Bin? Did you sell it to eBay? What was Monkey Bin? So Monkey Bin, my co-founder, Samir Bhatia, who was at Stanford, I met him in Chicago and we just were best friends and got along. We said, hey, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to start something together. You knew it. We knew, as soon as I met Samir, we knew we were going to do something together. And I think this is the powerful thing about a lot of co-founders is like, hey, we don't know exactly what problem we're going to solve yet, or maybe we do, but chances are it's going to change. But this is working. We're vibing. We're getting along. There's a set of shared values. And so I left McKinsey. He, he left his job in consulting in Chicago. We moved to California. No funding. Shared a one-bedroom apartment in uh, South of Market in the city. Mm-hmm. Slept on the floor. Didn't have any furniture. And we said, we're going to build this business. And so what was it? It was a marketplace for barter and trade. And back in the day, it was for college students who wanted to trade video games and DVDs and you know music and uh, CDs and, and movies. And it, it was a community tied to it. And so eBay came knocking because they were really interested in this alternative format to auctions, which mm. is trading and barter. Mm-hmm. And we had sort of the challenge in this environment was, you know, you'd go in and you list things you have and you shop for things you want. The chances of a double coincidence of somebody wanting what you have and you having what they want is very low. So we created this technology to build trading circles. So community-based trading. Anyway, eBay looked at it. You know, <laughs> we're in our early 20s. We're like, this is amazing. Like eBay is going to buy this business. This is great. And you you know, if anyone's worked in corp dev, you'll know that you you try to do as much as you can to learn (laughs) about a company without necessarily making any commitments. That probably lasted for like four months. You know, we were raising money at the time and we're like, guys, don't worry. Like this is going to be a good outcome. eBay's eBay's really interested. eBay didn't buy us. We ended up pivoting the company to be a B2B technology business. And we ended up selling the assets to a Japanese customer. But I fell in love with the team at eBay because I got to know them over that period of time. And when I was thinking about what's next, they said, hey, you know, we're trying to do something inside of this company that really hasn't been done, which is opening up the platform to third-party developers. And I got to know the team there. And it joined. Was, I joined and it was a you know manager of platform strategy. And again, for me, it was not about what I was doing as much as it was about this passion I had for technology and people and community and a marketplace business. And did you not want to start, did you and Samir not want to go start another one? Uh, we talked about that. Yeah, trust me. He, he, so I was enamored with the idea of building something in the context of a, you know, the birth of commerce online, like mm-hmm. global trading and to be able to get into that sandbox and try things that haven't been done before. And I said, hey, Samir, let me go do this for a year or two. And then I'm coming back to do what what you're going to do. And he goes, great, I'm going to start another company and I'm going to get it to a point where it's going to be so obvious to you that you shouldn't be doing that. You should be working with me. I said, great. You know, and, and that's what he did. Now he, he ended up building his company. I fell in love with what I was doing at eBay, effectively started building businesses inside of that company and just really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's incredible. You said side hustle. The thing that came to mind with the most preeminent side hustle that I think of you doing was what you ultimately ended up doing for Samir. Can you tell that story? Do you mind? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay. I'd be happy to. Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's not one I share often, but it's a very personal one. So in maybe 2008 or so, Samir got diagnosed with leukemia and he had AML, a type of leukemia that in many ways is often treatable, 
and he called me from India and he said he wasn't feeling well. So he was getting a checkup and getting you know, some doctor's reports and he got his blood test back. And the physician in India said, hey, listen, you need to get back to the United States as soon as possible. Now, Samir was an entrepreneur. He's in his early 30s, building his second or maybe it was even his third technology company at that point. Recently married, right, was out of Stanford. A lot of us at that stage in life could see our story in his story. He got to New Jersey, where his wife's family was. He was building his business between India and San Francisco. And he landed and went to see a doctor, and they wouldn't let him leave. And he got admitted to Robert Wood Johnson Hospital because they said that uh, the diagnosis was leukemia. He ended up going to Seattle, where he grew up, at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Care Center. And there's a very clear treatment protocol for leukemia. But it got to a point where they realized that traditional treatments weren't going to work and he needed to get a bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't really know what that meant, right? Uh, At the time I was at Berkeley, I was in business school, also at eBay. And we're like, well, what what does this actually mean? And it turns out that there is a national marrow donor program. There's a registry in the United States where you could search and look for a bone marrow donor. And it had at the time close to 8 million people in the registry. We're like, okay, great. Now you just have to look for a donor. Well, the problem is if you're South Asian, the chances, well, if you're Caucasian, the chances of finding a donor at the time are about 80%. So pretty high. Four out of five get a very close match and you get a donor, you get your bone marrow transplant. And that's one of the therapies um, that potentially could cure the leukemia. If you're South Asian though, the odds were one in 20,000. Why? It's because the highest propensity for a bone marrow match and a donor come from the same genetic or ethnic population. And there were so few South Asians registered. And so the doctors did a search and they said, we're sorry, there's no match. And traditional therapies and modalities weren't working. And this is really only the only solution to save your life. So Samir calls me and you know at the time we had another one of our distant friends, Vinay Chakravarti, who was also in the Bay Area, who was also diagnosed and a little bit ahead of Samir, also needed a bone marrow transplant. And so now we had two individuals, kind of relatively the same age, both recently married. And we're like, what's going on? He doesn't have a match. Samir didn't have his match. And the only option was to wait until somebody might come into the registry to have a bone marrow type that could potentially be a match. Problem is, doctor said, look, you got about 12 to 16 weeks. And I was like, well, till what? Well, till for survival. You're like, what? What the f*** does that mean? Like, how is this possible, right? As entrepreneurs, we're so accustomed to having a solution for every problem. And now we're faced with something where we're just like, well, how can there not be a solution for this? And so what we did is we said, well, hold on. And, you know, at the time, Samir didn't want to go public with this because he was an entrepreneur who was raising money for his company. And he was worried about the implications of his story. Wow impeding his ability to raise money. (laughs) I said, listen, I don't care about that. There's really only one solution. And we teamed up with with a group of friends that were helping Vinay. And we said, you know what? There's really only one solve, which is we need to go register 20,000 people. And if we register 20,000 people, then the odds are in our favor because we'll find that one match. The problem is we had 12 weeks how do you actually do that? And so that's kind of a hairy problem, but you know, if you think too much about it, you're not going to do anything. So I had sort of this mantra, which is act first, then think. 
And this is really pre-Facebook. You know, Facebook was there, but it wasn't really the kind of powerful network it is today. And so we said, well, well what do we actually do? So we, we just got to work and we said, it's going to start with Samira's story. So let's write an email and let's send it to as many people as possible. And let that be the catalyst in a chain reaction where we build a global campaign for Samir and for Vinay. We build two teams that work together and we go out and we host bone marrow drives and we go find Samir his match. And the process of contributing to the registry is actually quite simple. It's a cheek swap. So you just swab the inside of your cheek, you put it in an envelope and you mail it to the National Marrow Donor Program today called Be The Match. And they'll type you and they'll put you in the registry. Uh, now, the challenge is not just getting in the registry, but if you match, if you're called, then donating your bone marrow, and that can feel and sound very intimidating. But the good news is that there's a lot of ways to do that directly through something as simple as a blood draw. Mm-hmm. And we got to work. And it's hard to believe because when you're in the middle of all this running a campaign, you're sort of just trying to solve, like, it's like building a company. Yep. He's like, what's the problem that I need to solve today? Mm-hmm. What's the problem I need to solve tomorrow? But when you look back, we realize we did the unimaginable, which is close to uh, 500 or 600 drives throughout the United States with 3,500 volunteers telling Samir and Vinay's story. And we just lit it up with the South Asian community. Vinay's team got President Barack Obama to write a letter that we posted on the website for Team Vinay. We had uh, comedians, South Asian comedians who were spreading the word, and we posted their videos to Samir's site. So we'd help Vinay and help Samir.org. And we would track our daily metrics for all the drives we were doing. We had this goal of 20,000. 12 weeks later, 24,612 individuals throughout the United States and internationally registered. And we got the news that Samir got his match. So (laughs) we're just like, what? (laughs) It worked, right? And so the same tenacity and passion through which you build great companies, we just applied to saving our friend's life. And it took teamwork. It took collaboration tools, which, you know, really at the time were like email. You know, we had a wiki. It's just a lot of grit and hustle and a lot of volunteers. And we got to the outcome we wanted. Samir got his bone marrow match and his transplant. And, you know, at this point, Samir was, it was kind of funny because he was like CEO of the campaign. He moved from not wanting to tell his story because he was worried about fundraising. He would call me every day. He'd be like, give me the results. I'm like, okay, well, here's how many people we registered. Here's what we did. It's like, ah, not good enough. You got to do a better job tomorrow. It's <laughs> like, you know what? F- you. You're sitting in a hospital room. You just focus on getting better. Like, we will figure out like what we want to get done. Don't tell me what to do. He just couldn't stay away from his CEO founder tendency. And he would like send me advice and text messages at three in the morning. It's like, did you think about this? Did you think about that? I mean, we loved it, right? Because yeah. he was totally engaged. And what he realized is that this idea of getting a bone marrow transplant is really scary. So what he decided to do is once the donor's marrow up arrived in like an ice chest to his hospital room in Seattle, and you really just, it's just a transfusion. Now you're getting somebody else's marrow. Now, in the way this works is he had radiation therapy to effectively wipe out his immune system. Right. And now you're getting somebody else's bone marrow and blood cells. And it's like a copy paste. You're getting a version of their immune system in your body. So if they had allergies, now you have those allergies. It's a remarkable medical procedure. 
he'd call me Baba. He said, Baba, I'm going to record this and we're going to put it on YouTube so everyone can see it because he didn't want other patients to feel scared about what this process looks like. He wanted to destigmatize it. He did. He wanted to destigmatize it and he wanted to humanize it. And so, you know, these videos are still up on YouTube, just incredibly powerful. And uh, it's like this simple procedure. I'm like, all this for just like this, you know, what looks like a blood transfusion. And it was successful, but then he relapsed. And it was probably a few months where he realized, hey, it didn't hold. And you begin to understand that even the world's most insurmountable challenges, when you think you've solved them, there's just certain things that, even as entrepreneurs, it sucks to fail, right? And you really feel like we, we failed. And the reality is, and the truth is that we didn't fail. Like we were really successful. It's just, you can't control every outcome, you know? And there's a lot of lessons in that, but it was a really difficult thing to come to terms with because now we said, well, let's do it again. Like, what do we need to do? And the reality was that at this point, a lot of the treatments that were going to be most appropriate for him were experimental or not FDA approved. And, you know, he could be part of a trial and he fought hard and he went through all of that, but ultimately caught an infection in the hospital and was in a coma and never woke up from that. And he passed away. How long from when he did the transfusion until relapsing? You know, my memory... Do you mind if I ask? No, 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 no. Please, I mean, this is really important. I, I'll have, I may have this wrong, but it's probably three or four months. How frustrating was that feeling of getting to the point where you've created literally a national movement, where Obama is writing a letter on your all's behalf, getting everyone activated towards cause and goal, to then whatever that email was yeah. that you have a match and then doing it. And then for some suspended period of time, you have your friend back. Absolutely. Yeah. He was, you released from the hospital. He was at home. He was at home. Probably had like a celebration. Yeah. We had all kinds of stuff. He was, uh, his thing was, you know, he, <laughs> he wanted to demonstrate to all of us how strong, he was throughout all of it. And so we would go to see him up at the hospital in Seattle and we'd go in and he'd be like, all right, push-up contest. Who's going first? <laughs> like, well, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, we're going to do push-ups. I just want to, well, you guys want you to see, I haven't lost my, you know, my, my strength. And we would do these push-up contests in the hospital room. And, you know, I don't know, I'd maybe do 20 or 30 and he'd blow past me. <laughs> I was like, this guy's just indestructible. And, um, yeah, he was discharged from the hospital. He was at home, his family uh, in Mercer Island. He was staying with his parents and, uh, uh, it was great. I mean, because you're like, it worked, right? It's like when you, maybe there's a analog to building a company and you, you have- you know, Product you close, market fit. Yeah, product market fit, or you get escape velocity, or you close a big deal that you've been working on. And yeah, you celebrate because you realize that hard work pays off. Yeah. And in this case, we had the f- good fortune of incredible volunteers and a network of friends. We had a friend, um, you know, we had Team Vinay, Team Samir, and we had friends, Preeti Radhakrishnan, Sandeep Ahuja, a number of folks who were in our network in the Bay Area, also entrepreneurs, who would connect the two campaigns to make sure we were knowledge sharing and doing mm-hmm. best practices between them. Like we did everything we could humanly do that was possible to help our mm-hmm. friends, and it worked. But we, you know, we can't control human physiology. He called me 
the night he said, listen, my fever is not going away. I don't know what this means, but I, I'm going back to the hospital. And you just have that pit in your stomach. You're like, okay, it should be okay. But yeah, get that checked out. And um, he never came back home. Yeah. The lesson that you drew from that, this idea of the inputs and then what that means towards the outputs. I think about the comment that you made about what people called folks like, I guess me, and maybe you at some point of the anxious overachiever. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, Highly anxious overachievers. Highly anxious overachievers. (laughs) Yeah, that, that really resonates. I wonder if part of that anxiety comes from a high achiever's lust or just craving for controlling the outcomes and, you know, looking at that linear path and thinking, how do I get to the next yeah. thing? Yeah. Rather than what are the things that I can focus on today? Right. That are the inputs that might lead to something. Look, one of the, I agree, you know, and it's, it's very hard to divorce yourself from the objective you're trying to achieve in Indian spirituality and in Vedanta in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a, a verse, I'll translate it to the best of my ability, but it's this principle of disconnecting and divorcing yourself from the fruits of your desires. Let go of the outcome and focus on making the right decisions and doing the right things in service of the problem or the challenge that you're attempting to solve. There's a certain power in this idea of letting go of the outcome and just focusing on what you need to do to help someone, to help your team, to help your company, whatever it is, and letting go of the outcome. Now, you can imagine in an attempt to save our friend's life, that's a very challenging thing to let go of because we had a target. We had a goal. We measured it. We had this like thermometer, 20,000 people we wanted to get registered, mm-hmm. right? We were tracking every single day, oftentimes multiple times a day as we'd get data coming in around how many people got registered. But when I look back at Samir's story, there's something very powerful in this, which is we could never have predicted, despite this devastating loss of losing our best friend, his older brother losing his younger brother, his parents losing a son. About six or eight months after, it was kind of within the year after Samir's passing, uh, we got a phone call from the National Marrow Donor Program in Be The Match because they wanted some advice and guidance on how we did this campaign because so many other patients needed a playbook. This is, Samir's story is not unique in the sense that there's a lot of individuals who need to get a bone marrow transplant and don't find a match. We went from about 35,000 people in the registry, South Asians in the registry, and we added roughly another 25,000. So just think about that jump. In passing, the NMDP folks said, hey, by the way, we just want to let you know that your campaign was so successful that it's helped a lot of other patients. I said, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. And they said, well, our current estimate is there's been about 300 other patients who found matches from the thousands of people that were registered during Samir and Vinay's campaign. And I was like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) And I said, yeah, there's, there's been hundreds of other people who found matches. I was like, we didn't even think about that. That in our effort to save Samir's life, we were, you know, not doubling, but close to like doubling the registry. 
and a lot of other patients would benefit from that. Well, what was happening is that there was this pipeline of patients that were constantly looking for bone marrow donors, but they just couldn't find a match. And when you surge a registry by 25,000 people, inadvertently, like this wasn't our intent, but you're actually helping to save hundreds of other lives, not just in that first year, but in all of the years following. And I'm sure that number is now up to the thousands of people saved. And so when we look back at Samir and Vinay's legacy, like, wait a second, there was a much bigger purpose that they served. And you realize, well, that's not an outcome we could have ever predicted. Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Let's say after Atlassian, right? You're done. Like you're financially, you're fine. Your family doesn't have to worry about things. Atlassian was one of these very rare companies. You know, eBay, like incredible run, right? I could see you being like, why don't I go do something that gave me what that blood drive Mm -hmm. did? Why channel my energy into another traditional (laughs) full-time job as opposed to doing something else that feels like it gives you so much that checks all of your boxes around creation and fulfillment and et cetera, et cetera. Did that ever cross your mind? I think about it all the time. And here's what I realized, which is there's so many problems to be solved in the world. But I talked to you earlier about this idea of integrating my life, right? And I fundamentally believe, and this is a lesson I was taught by Pierre Omidyar, who is the founder of eBay, that business is a force for good. And one of the most sustainable and powerful ways to create change in the world is by building successful, enduring companies. And so what I've worked hard at is integrating my career and the problems I like to solve. I love marketing challenges, as you can see. Samir Vinay's challenge was sort of a marketing challenge, Mm. right? In every company I'm at, like, how do we drive and grow revenue using the tools and people available to us. I just love that. I love creating things that didn't exist. That's true whether I'm building or scaling a business or whether I'm doing something around social impact. And so what I've done is align myself with a few causes that I care deeply about. One of them is certainly the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Another is the American Heart Association. And another is economic and social impact in India, where my parents are from, uh, their origin story. Mm And I do that through an organization called the American India Foundation. And what I found is having a platform like a company is actually a fantastic vehicle through which to engage and inspire my team and employees and others to connect the purpose of the businesses I'm building to those causes that I care about and finding ways for all of that stuff to intersect. I did the exact same thing at eBay. And so for me, businesses are one of the most powerful and sustainable forms uh, value creation and using the engine of building a great business to then support and have an impact on the causes that I care about is something that I just really enjoy doing. I've only asked one other guest this, Bill McDermott, would you consider running for president? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like somewhat facetious, but I'm like kind of not. Like, would yeah. you, like, why don't you run for politics? I've never thought about it. Uh, because I, all I the love- things that you're describing are really. <laughs> Like all the things around your purpose, marketing. Yeah. 
Which even you, this might be a turning point. We'll see. Dude, I got a lot of work to do at DocuSign. Let's but. use this as the this is the like <laughs> you know your moment of coming down the escalators. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Let's let's assume it was not at that particular building or hotel where that took place. But I will. Uh, you've heard it here. I will attribute any future opportunities in politics to this podcast session sitting across from you uh, here in Menlo Park. That's right. Um, You went to spring. That feels very random to me. Let me share some context. Please. So I told you that- You're the CMO of North America at eBay at this point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Best job. It's the job I always wanted. Uh, The leadership team there was like, hey, this 12 years, like you were meant to do this. And you know, that was that period of time, that six month period where I was like, is this the right thing or not? And before I tell you the spring story, I'll, I'll tell you a very powerful moment, which is a, a leader named David Schwartzbeck, who was helping to run. He was the CFO of the North America business at, at eBay. And there's a woman named Rochelle Parham who was transitioning out, was a prior CMO. And they said, look, we need you to do this. You may be uncertain about whether this is right for you or not. A lot of us are going through that journey. You've earned this and we want you to do this and we need your help. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. You know, this is a- Do rule. what? To, to, to serve a CMO. Yeah, okay. Because I initially said, I'm not sure if I want that job. Mm. And there's something really powerful in leaders seeing something in you that you may not see yourself. Mm-hmm. And they said, if you come back four months, six months from now, and you said, this is not what you want to do, that's completely okay. But we need your help to navigate a lot of the change that's happening. Mm. So I, I said, almost like a calling, like I, I said, absolutely. And I felt very privileged to be in that situation. But remember, I said I wanted to build again. Yeah. And so at the time... This remarkable company, funded by uh, some of the peers uh, that you guys have mm-hmm. here on Sand Hill Road, mm-hmm. was an e-commerce platform for creators who wanted to design and sell merchandise online. And the remarkable part of this, was, and it started with apparel, uh, t-shirts and you know, related accessories, where you could design something, sell your design on the Spring platform, market it on social media, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, at the time, and generate transactions without ever actually touching inventory. Spring would be the creator of the merchandise and would do all the shipping, and the individual who designed the product would actually just collect a check. And what I saw was a business that went from zero to a few hundred million dollars in transaction volume in a couple of years. It was started by Walker Williams, Mm. uh, Evan, both of them out of Brown in Rhode Island. They moved the company to California two remarkable entrepreneurs. And they're like, hey, the wheels are falling off this thing. We have a huge opportunity to scale really this new e-commerce model that uses our technology and powers creators. And it's this intersection of social and commerce. And I got just really excited about working with these folks. And so, you know, a lot of my decisions are around the people. You know, every jump that I often make comes down to people over even the business and strategy, you know, people and purpose. And what I saw in Walker was this remarkable entrepreneur who needed help. And I said, hey, let's do this. And I'm ready to build together. And there's some of the past folks from eBay who were investors in this Mm -hmm. company. And I just got really passionate about partnering with and helping young entrepreneurs scale this e-commerce business. And that's one thing that I knew was e-commerce. It was a lot of fun. I did that for a couple of years and I realized, you know what? As much as I thought I was learning a lot, and I certainly did during that time at Spring, had a chance to, Sam Altman was on the board, had a chance to like spar with Sam about like the future of this business and things that we should have done and could do to grow it. I realized that my learning curve had flattened in e-commerce and I sort of needed to create a new vector of growth. And it was a conscious choice. I said, I'm going to leave e-commerce. I want to do something very different. Mm. Go to Atlassian. 
Well, you know, I looked at life sciences companies. I was really passionate about genomics. I just got really interested wow. in uh, payments, transportation. I just realized that as a marketer, the ability to create value is relevant to all kinds of industries. And I just hadn't really thought about it beyond e-commerce. Certainly thought about it for Samir's campaign and realized I wanted to aim my passion around business building and marketing towards a new sector. And the last place I thought I would ever end up would be a software company. <laughs> I had a very specific mm-hmm. and probably cliched understanding of the culture of most software companies. Met Jay Simons, who at the time was president of Atlassian, and Mike and Scott, who were Atlassian's founders. And what I saw was an opportunity to apply what I love doing, which is building the engines of growth, and I'd done that in e-commerce, to bring that into a software company. And you know, I had really no reference for leaders who'd crossed from consumer to enterprise. I just didn't see models for individuals who had done that, let alone done that and gone back to consumer. Today, that doesn't feel like a big leap. But back you know, six or seven years ago, that was actually a pretty big jump for somebody to go from being a marketer in consumer e-commerce platforms into the belly of an enterprise software company. Mm. But what I saw is something that hadn't ever been done before, which was this testing this hypothesis. And this goes credit to Jay Simons uh, for seeing this opportunity and potential. But could you take a lot of the capabilities that power some of the world's most successful consumer platforms, Amazon and Netflix and Spotify and eBay and PayPal? Could you take the acquisition science, the analytics, the intelligence that scaled a lot of those companies and plug them in and build them in the context of a B2B software company? What would be possible? Mm -hmm. And Atlassian had always been known for a remarkable product-led growth business, could we pair that with marketing-driven growth? And if you were to put that together, can you create a multiplier effect that would just, one, drive operating efficiency, but more importantly, drive revenue? And we're like, well, I don't know if that's possible, but let's give it a try. And over six years at Atlassian, you know, we took the business from $500 million in revenue to well past $3.5 billion. And there's a lot of things you have to get right for that to happen, mm. the most important of which is great products. And we're fortunate, uh, Atlassian being founder-led company, to make bold bets and think in decades as opposed to quarters. Mm -hmm. But we got the license to build a lot of great technology and a lot of great capabilities and a great team. And uh, and we did it. And uh, it's one of the most exciting things I've ever done from a career perspective is to see something go from idea to scale like that in an environment where you could test your ideas. And if it doesn't work great. Like we'll try something different. But over the period of six years, we've built something quite amazing. Dude, I heard people cry when you left Atlassian. I heard, I heard literally <laughs> well, people cried. I've never heard of that in a professional context. Oh, well that's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know who you spoke to, but you know, listen, uh, I cried because I didn't want to leave. Really? Yeah. I didn't want to leave Atlassian. I, it was one of these things where you cried because you didn't want to leave. Yeah. Isn't that usually when most people are like, should I stay? <laughs> yeah. And, and trust me, I, I had a lot of self-doubt. Uh, oftentimes as leaders, we don't talk about the self-doubt that comes into the decision. Like, am I making the right decision? Am I making the right decision if I'm so passionate about this business and about, you know, really the team that we built from, you know, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 people in marketing and data science to 800, 900 people. Why would you let that go if you love it so much? I have so much respect and admiration for Mike and Scott at Lassian's Founders, I've learned so much from daily, weekly interactions with mm. them and how they think. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but if it's not hard to let go, then something's wrong. 
But what I knew is there's a lot of lessons, both from my e-commerce days, my entrepreneurship days, from helping to scale Atlassian and serve the teams there that are relevant to a lot of other businesses and companies in the world. And I wanted to reinvent myself. I wanted to do something else that I wasn't sure if it was going to be possible or not. And uh, I met Alan Tegeson, who's now the CEO of DocuSign. Alan was previously a president at Google for over a decade. We have a relatively new leadership team at DocuSign, and here's a multi-billion dollar company that wants to reinvent itself for the future. And I saw a really good fit from the things I love doing, which is team building and scaling companies, and the need that DocuSign had to reinvent itself for the future. And it was absolutely hard to let go of Atlassian because my identity was wrapped into it, just like it was at eBay. But I also knew that there was that moment where you want to get uncomfortable. And that's why I made the leap. Mm -hmm. I was told that you worked the hardest you've ever worked at Atlassian your last three months there. (laughs) First of all, is that true? And is that by design? You know, very similar story at eBay. There's always unfinished business. There's things that you want to do that when you're not leaving a company and the sense of your timeline is infinite, you sort of don't put pressure. You're like, you're like all right, I'm going to prioritize my, the stuff I'm going to get done and we're going to, we're going to get it across the line. And Atlassian was going through a lot of change in the final months that I was there. And there's a lot of things that I just hadn't done yet, all the way from recruiting great leaders into the company to make sure that the teams were in a good spot to projects that wanted to get shipped to adjustments to how we were organized. And, you know, when you love what you do, work can create energy. I would say, yeah, I did, I did work intensely hard my final months at Atlassian, but it didn't feel like work. It just felt like I was finishing my story and trying to get as much done out of love for my team and love for the company. Maybe there's a little part of not wanting to go that was a way for me to hold on. And I remember doing the same thing at eBay. And I'm a big believer that there's two types of people in the world, people who take energy from you and people who create energy. You know, you probably think about every relationship in your life and it doesn't mean one's good and one's bad. It's just this, I simplify things into those two categories. And when you're in an environment where you're surrounded by people who create energy for you, working hard is not about the hours or the time you're putting in or the lack of sleep that you get. It's about, you know, can I be the best version of myself to help everyone around me and for me to feel good about putting a bow on this part of my life and part of my professional life and moving on to the next thing. And you just want to do the best that you can possibly do. And I think as leaders, we owe it to the teams that we serve to do that. What's the toughest feedback that anyone's ever given to you? (sighs) I'm always told that, hey, Robert, you lead with a lot of empathy, but sometimes you have to break more glass. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, you know, what does that mean? It's like, well, make tough calls sooner And that's been pretty consistent feedback throughout my life. And what I would say is I've learned a lot from that. And I'm a big believer that what you do is important in making those tough calls, whether it's on strategy or people, is really important. But I would be inauthentic to myself if I only focused on what I do and not how I do it. And so I really pride myself in both the IQ of driving change and making tough calls, breaking glass, and balancing that, I think, with the EQ of leading with empathy and heart and understanding that sometimes change is hard and you can inspire people around you with how you do it. You can make great decisions and do a terrible job at implementing them, or you can make great decisions and take the time to explain the change 
and bring people along with you on the journey. And I found that when you do it that way, change is sustainable. And so a lot of the feedback that I get is, hey, you know what? You need Sometimes you need to be more of an asshole. <laughs> sometimes you need yeah. to have sharper elbows. And uh, I take that to heart. I have enough self-awareness at this stage in my career to know exactly when I need to lean in more aggressively to drive change versus totally bring people along and get them inspired. A lot of that has come from making mistakes. And I'm really, I think I'm pretty good at putting that feedback to use. Yeah. A different derivative of this question, which is someone asked me this question and it spun me around for like 48 hours because I've never thought about it before. Hmm. That's a good question when it sort of ruminates with you and it stays with you. Yes. My reflection of my answer to the question was that I think I answered it pretty honestly the first time, which means that it like really pride at the heart of what I was thinking, if that makes sense. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. enough of the preamble. But the question was, what's something that most people think about you that you don't agree with? Oh, that is a good, <laughs> that is a good question. That's a great question. I'll be here if you're listening. It's your question. Yeah, that's great. So are you asking me this question? Yeah, I'm asking you this question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, repeat it. So what do most people, what do many people- What's something people... that most people think about you that you don't agree with? That- Emotional intelligence and empathy aren't effective when you have to make tough decisions. I've heard at various points in my career that, hey, that's great. There's a time to sort of like lead that way, but that's not what we need right now. And I would disagree with that because I have found that this idea of even when you need to lead with an iron fist, it's okay to wear a velvet glove. One of the leaders I admire a lot is Meg Whitman. And I remember her at eBay would lead through tough times, but she would do it in a way that would get others on board and get them to help the company or help her through navigate that kind of change. And so I'm a really big believer, again, in not just the what you do, but how you do it and balancing those two things in order to get to the outcomes that you want. Yeah. Really well said. You're now the president of DocuSign. New role created for you. Yeah. I think your marketing sensibilities must have been tingling when you can join a company that is used as a verb. <laughs> right. Right? Yes. That's pretty cool. It is. It is. It's a remarkable brand with hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who've interacted with it. Yeah. Are you hiring for that role or for people on your team? Are there jobs available? We is are. There, we are. Is there anything, any specific job? That you're like, I need to fill this. Yeah. That you want to shout out. Oh, that's good. Thank you for the opportunity. Look, we are reinventing a company. DocuSign is a multi-billion dollar company. A billion signers throughout the world have used the product in some way. And it's historically been known as an e-signature company. But what drew me here, in addition to sort of the go-to-market challenges that we have, is we stand for agreements. And agreements are about trust. And again, it comes back to this intersection of technology and service of humanity. And to me, there's no higher calling than building a platform that helps to create and foster more trust in the world. And so as we reinvent the company, we are recruiting, you know, in my world at DocuSign for areas of communications, product-led growth, sales, marketing across the board. And that's true for our engineering organization. It's true for our global sales team. So look, you know, technology is going through a pretty big shift right now. And I believe it's one of those moments where the companies who are able 
to bring new talent in the door can find some of the most remarkable individuals that, frankly, may have been really difficult to attract in the last few years. And I'm a big believer that tough times don't last, but great teams do. And so the ability to build and attract and retain talent during this time, I think, is going to be a superpower for a lot of companies coming out of some of the shifts that are happening in tech. When you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? For me, the word uh, grit probably invokes, well, I think about my parents. You know, I mentioned they later in life became entrepreneurs and uh, they had retail businesses in Chicago. And hustle and tenacity, this idea that I mentioned earlier, I learned from my dad that there's no substitute for hard work. The tenacity to say, okay, despite challenges or obstacles or anything that comes in your way, just get up and go back at it, right? Maybe solve the problem a little bit differently, but you have to think long-term and like I said, tough times don't last. And so despite what might be happening around you, work with great people who create energy for you and be tenacious about solving the things you're passionate about solving. That to me, grit and tenacity go hand in hand. Robert, thank you. Jubin, this has been fantastic. Oh my God. Yeah. feel like I'm talking to a friend. You know, we don't have, we don't have a glass of wine. We have uh, sparkling waters, but if we can hey. drop these mics, I think you just did it. Yeah. Thank I, you. I appreciate the opportunity and the chance. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's people who create energy and take energy. And I certainly feel energized after a conversation like this. Likewise. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for the chance. Thanks. Yeah. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.